What country has the world's longest coastline? And what occupation are you if you're a knocker upper? A what? <laughs> knocker upper. Upper. Oh dear. <laughs> Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and have some fun with trivia. Well, I can't imagine what a (laughs) knocker-upper is, Marsh. Okay, well, this will amaze and amuse you. Back in the old days, you said he knocked her up. That was a different thing. That was a different thing. This is a knocker-upper. And this is before the advent of the alarm clock. Okay, then I think I know what it is. What is it? It is a person that would go around and wake people up in the morning. Yes! Excellent! In England, wasn't it? Yes! Industrial era workers who needed help waking up in time for work would hire people called knocker-uppers. <laughs> these, these hardy souls would rise in the early hours of the day and patrol the street with sticks, tapping on their clients' bedrooms' windows each morning. Clap, clap, clap. Some knocker-uppers, like Mary Smith, were not fans of the stick method and she roused the local sleepyheads by shooting peas at their window panes. <laughs> so. Okay, Marsha, what country has the world's longest coastline? Is it Canada? Canada. Yes, Canada. <laughs> yes, and Canada has shores extending along the Atlantic, Arctic, and Pacific Oceans. Oh, okay. I yeah. should have said, what three oceans? That oh, might have been yeah, interesting. Yeah. What country has three oceans? Yeah, the world's longest coastline. Now... Just how long is controversial? Why? Because other countries claim some of those shorelines? No. Uh, I don't know why. It depends on how you measure it. If you sail down past it and measure the miles, that's one thing. But if you tack in and out of every nook and cranny, it can be far longer. Oh. So here are the lengths. Canada's coastline is either 125,567 miles long. That's the World Atlas. Or it's 151,019 miles long, based on Canada's National Statistical Office, and they do the every nook and cranny. Uh What are the three runner-up countries and the longest coastline? uh, The three runner-up countries. One of them is a group of islands. Okay, countries. One's a group of islands. Tell me, just tell me. Indonesia, Uh Norway, and Russia. Russia now, I wouldn't think sense. Norway would have more uh, coastline than Russia. That's interesting, right? Yeah, that's or hard even to, as much. That's hard to fathom. It, <laughs> anyway, those are the statistics. Huh, I'll be darned. All right, Bob, what was the name of the first video game, and what year did it come out? Well, I remember my parents had one of those... Uh, it was like an arcade thing. It was like yeah. you sit up for a TV set. It had two little paddles, yeah, and then you yeah. played games. Yeah. And Pong was one of those. So Pong had to be in the early 70s. Yeah. I remember seeing it when I graduated from college in 73, and I yeah. thought, this is cool. Yeah, 72. Yeah, and it's if you look at it today, it is so slow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here it comes again. <laughs> and uh, Nintendo came out with that game, and until then, they were known for making... Playing cards. <laughs> That's right. That's right. They were a playing card company. 
Yeah. But uh, there was an inventor, I think he was a scientist somewhere that came up with Pong. Who invented it? Yeah, I believe so. And Nintendo got it? I right? think they turned it into a commercial game, yeah. That was the beginning of a whole new ball game for them. Multi-billion dollar corporations these game companies are now, how much money they, yeah. they're worth. It's amazing. Okay, Marcia, if you go to the Kennedy Space Center, what's unusual about one of the trees there? At the Kennedy Space Center. In uh, Florida. Is it missing all its top branches because they're singed when the... The rockets take off? <laughs> yeah. No, no, that's not it. What is it? It's a moon tree. Oh, yeah? Now, what is it? Well, the astronauts of NASA's Apollo 14 were the third group to land on the moon in 1971, but the mission had another lesser-known legacy, moon trees. During the mission, astronaut Stuart Rusa, a former U.S. Forest Service smoke jumper, carried with him... 500 seeds from Loblolly, Pine, Sweet Gum, Redwood, Douglas Fir, and Sycamore trees. Uh-huh. He took all those. So after orbiting 34 times, the scientists wanted to see what would happen to those seeds. If anything. And they had 420 saplings from that. Okay. They've decided they're just normal trees. So they gave them to schools and parks. Oh, they didn't look or act any different after no. that. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. Schools and parks and government offices around the country, they're called moon trees and trees that have grown from their seeds are called half-moon trees. Okay. So they're all over the place. And a lot of their locations have been forgotten because they just look like regular yeah, trees. Yeah, there's nothing spectacular. But the sycamore at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex, which was planted on June 25, 1976, during the bicentennial, is called a moon tree. 23 states in the country have living moon trees. Huh. All right, Bob. What are the chances of scoring a hole-in-one? One out of how many? Uh, is it in the hundreds or thousands? Thousands. Okay, I'll say 2,526 to one. No, but it's one in 15,000, which is a lot. And that tees up my question from a listener. Mm-hmm. Paul, a listener in Monterey, California. Okay. What is par for the world's longest golf hole? You what know, is par? Yeah, like uh, some of the local uh, ones around here are par fives. The record longest hole is in Gunsum Country Club in South Korea, which we probably won't get to this year. <laughs> its third hole measures 1,097 yards, which is a heck of a long way. What is it? Par, seven. And Japan has Sano Golf Course. It also is a seven par, and it's right up there with 964-yard holes, so... Well, not being a golfer, I would have thought that those pars would be a higher number than seven. Yeah. Remember we stood on the 18th hole of the Pebble Beach Golf Course? Mm -hmm. That was a par five. And the longest par in U.S. is par six in Virginia. So uh, par seven is really quite a deal. I can't appreciate that. I know you don't play golf, but Paul does. And that's the important thing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You're right. Thank you, Paul. Okay, Marcia, there's a lady who recently died. I'm going to give you her name, and I'm going to say you would recognize her face, but not her name. Her name is Ann Turner Cook because of a portrait you've seen many times over your lifetime. Do you have any idea who Ann Turner Cook was? Well, I, can I have a era? Yes. She was born in 1928. Ann Turner Cook, she just died. She was 95. Well... Something happened when she was a very little child, and it made her face famous. Really? Yes. Oh, jeez. Now you got... Well, I'm dying to know what. 
She was the actual Gerber baby. Oh, she was? Yes. Oh, and my mom collected those pictures. Ann Turner Cook, who recently died at age 95, was the Gerber baby on millions and millions of packages of Gerber baby food. Interesting story behind this whole thing. It was a neighbor who was a graphic designer, an artist, Dorothy Hope Smith, who did her face. Oh, okay. And she entered it in the one of the first baby contests that Gerber Baby Foods did. And it was a charcoal drawing. And she promised the uh, judges, if this wins, I'll go ahead and finish the sketch. This is just the charcoal I did of this baby friend of ours a couple of years ago. And they said, no, we like it as is. Uh-huh. And you remember, it was always a charcoal sketch. Oh, I, you know, I didn't think of that, but you're right. Do you know a mother in the world that didn't love that Gerber baby? Because she looked right at the... Pr- yeah. And that used her picture for 90 I, years. Oh, my God. Now, she did receive some money for it, though. Yeah. When she was 23, she did accept a settlement from Gerber in the amount of $5,000. Now, that doesn't sound like much, but that was 1951. Okay. That's equivalent to $58,000 in today's money. And she used it to help make a down payment on her first home. So she did get something out well, of it. Not much in my book, but that is something. She became a teacher for the rest of her life, and uh, she didn't ever tell anybody about it, especially her students, because she didn't want to get ridicule and have a class distracted. Now, there is a rumor that a famous Hollywood actor was the face of the Gerber baby. Who was that? Uh, was it a boy or a girl? A boy. Actor? boy. I don't know. Humphrey Bogart. Oh, no. Yeah. No, I don't want Humphrey on my baby food. But he was a baby on baby food, it turns out. No kidding. Yeah. He was a model, a baby model, not for Gerber's. It was for another company, and that was back in the 1920s. And his mother also was an artist, too. So she submitted his face, but it was for another baby food. Well, here's dribbling on you, kid. (laughs) Okay. You should get this, Bob. Name the album that introduced the world to the synthesizer. That was the Switch on Bach. Oh, you did, right off the bat. Yeah, because I remember our band director playing that for us in really? high school. Yeah. What year? 68 or 67? Ding, ding, ding. That's right. It was a collection of Johann Sebastian Bach. The groundbreaking album, Switched on Bach. You know who the music pioneer was? It was Walter Carlos. Wendy. Well, now Wendy. Walter is now Wendy. Really? Transgender now. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Well, anyway, at the time... Walter used a Moog synthesizer to show mainstream music fans and executives alike that the technology had more universal application. You read famous rock musicians, so many of them, that was an inspiration. Yeah, it's that album what it was. says here. It was the perfect marriage of the right technology and the right techniques at the right time. So okay. we all think about when we die, how do we want to be buried? Everybody has that thought at some time in their life. How did Sir Walter Raleigh, the man who brought tobacco to Europe, declare he should be buried? All right, so where did he want to be buried? Um, how did he want to be buried, I said. I gave you a clue and you didn't get it. How did Sir Walter Raleigh, the man who brought tobacco to Europe, want okay. to be buried? Oh, on a tobacco plantation somewhere in America? No, he wanted to be buried with tobacco. (laughs) Really? Oh my goodness. With his favorite pipe, a tin of tobacco. His coffin was also lined with wood from old Havana cigar boxes. Every smoker in England was invited to attend his funeral and each received 10 pounds of tobacco and two pipes if they came. No kidding. Okay. What is an herb strewer. Herb strewer? Yeah. S-T-R-E-W-E-R? Correct. It's a profession that has fallen by the wayside. An herb strewer. Now, herbs 
are plant-based and herb strewer. So somebody who distributes herbs? I don't know. Yes. Details, please. Okay. Before the invention of the flush toilet by Mr. Who? Thomas Crapper. Sir Thomas, yes. Sir Thomas Crapper. Real guy. Cities often smelled less than desirable. Uh, Yes. But if you were wealthy enough, in the 17th century, you could hire an herb strewer (laughs) to keep the aroma fresh. King George III, for instance, employed Mary Rayner, a woman who spent more than 40 years, Bob, scattering flowers and herbs and other natural fragrances throughout the royal residence to make it smell welcoming. Oh, God. Popular plants included lavender roses, chamomile, sweet yarrow, basil, marjoram, and violets. And that's all she did. She just walked around the palace making strewing it Strewing those herbs. Strewing those Isn't herbs. that a strange... Where did the term strew come from? That would be interesting. S-T-R-E-W. Well, that can be the next show. I think we should take a break now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll be back with more in just a moment. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob... And Marsha. Smith. We're back. Welcome to The Off-Ramp. And I've got a question for you from history, Marsha. In 1922, rebels from a foreign government tracked down and shot one of their own in what became known as the Central Park Ambush. Did you ever hear of this? No. I never did either. What country were the gunmen from? I was very surprised when I heard about this. This is called the Central Park Ambush. It's from 1922. 1922. Italy? No. Uh-uh. Uh, don't know. Ireland. What were they doing there? top gunman of the Irish Republican Army came to the United States, stalked and gunned down one of their own, Patrick Joseph Cruxy O'Connor. <laughs> hey, Cruxy. As he left his apartment, he was a former IRA comrade who switched sides repeatedly in Ireland's fight for independence from Britain. So he's going back and forth. Huh. He became an informer. And so they tracked him down here because they blamed him for a switch of allegiance that got six IRA men killed. Wow. Came here, got a hold of him, shot him near Central Park in 1922. Okay. Now, the interesting thing was everybody got away, including him. He was shot four times. Oh, my God. And he survived bullet wounds to the backside, stomach, and jaw. And for the rest of his life, he refused to say who shot him, even though he knew. When he was asked, he would just shake his head. And guess what? The Irish ran the docks in New York City, and they got all of those gunmen and sent them back to Ireland. Wow. And he actually moved his family back and forth between Canada, the United States, and England for the next 30 years to make sure he was safe. You think he would have been saved just because he didn't squeal on who it was. Yeah, but apparently no. They were still gunning for him, but he apparently died finally in the 1950s. No kidding. But he successfully eluded them. But this is the Central Park ambush. I never heard of this, that the IRA sent gunmen to the United States. Never heard of it either. Okay. Bob, what is an umbilicoplasty? (laughs) plasty? Umbilicoplasty. Yes. Sounds like a plastic umbilical cord is what it sounds like. It does, doesn't it? Umbilical plasty. So this sounds like an operation or something. Yeah. It's an operation you can have to alter your belly button surgically. (laughs) If you have an Audi and one an innie, they can do it. Oh, that's funny. Is your belly button, Bob, an innie or Audi? It's an innie. Innie? How about yours? Innie. Okay. And why do you think that is? Because they cut it. Who did? Well, the doctors. They snip it and then they tuck it back in. Do they? Yeah. Who cut our kids' umbilical cord? 
I did. That's right. And did you determine if it was an innie or outie? No, but the doctors did. Oh, with the way they tied the yeah, knot? Yeah, isn't oh, it? Most people think that's the truth, Okay, but what's it's not. the answer, Marcia? The answer is, when you were born, the doctor cut the umbilical cord a couple of inches away from your belly. There's no tying involved, actually. They clamp it, is what they do. Ah. And once it's clamped, the small section of umbilical cord dries up and falls off in about a week, if right. you recall. I remember that. What's left is the umbilicus or belly button. But here's the thing. The size and shape of a belly button depends entirely on the way your tummy heals and the cord falls off. If you have an innie, you probably had no infection. But if you had a slight infection, it would be an outie. Really? Yeah. Roughly 90% of people have innies. <laughs> Isn't that weird? So you only have an outie if you had an infection. Slight infection in the umbilical cord, and it just causes it to be an outie. How about that? I didn't know that, I'm Marsh. here to enlighten you, Bob. So we're gazing at it's, our navel here. It's as the we... way, and so it's the way the belly button heals. So if it's a slightly infected, it heals out. And if it's not infected, it heals in. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Marcia, if you travel, you see many interesting things. What building in the world has the world's highest glass floor elevator? Oh, dear. Not a glass floor, but a glass floor elevator. Now, I'll give you a choice. Okay. The CN Tower in Toronto. Okay. The Oriental Pearl Tower, Shanghai. The Willis Tower, Chicago. Oh, gosh. The one in Canada. That's right. The CN Tower in Toronto. Can you imagine this? You'll be able to see 1,135 feet straight down oh my God. to the ground from the 58-second journey to the top of the building. Oh, oh these glass-floored <laughs> elevators. They were the first of their kind when they were first installed. And how long ago? 1994, so it's been almost 30 years. Jeez. And for those who do get queasy, the elevator operator can turn the floor into an opaque white surface really? with the flick of a switch. I would say that from the beginning. Yes, please, <laughs> turn the switch. Turn the switch. Okay, bagpipes, Bob. Where did they originate? What country? Bagpipes. Now, I think of them in Scotland. Mm-hmm. I, I thought they were somewhere from the Middle East or something like that. Why would you say that? I don't I just remember reading that they were ancient and they came west through Europe, but I don't know anything about it. Did you, lad? Yeah. Okay. Well, they go all the way back to about 1000 BC Wow. in Sumeria, which is southern Iraq today. Yes. The Sumerian civilization, one of the first. Wow. It's really. kind of hard to imagine Iraqis walking around with bagpipes, but nonetheless, they did. Anyway, from the Mideast, they found their way to Greece and Rome, and those rambling Romans are the ones who first used them in battle and marched themselves off to North Scotland, where they found a very welcoming home. I didn't know that. So the Romans brought bagpipes to Scotland. Mm -hmm. That's where they came from. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that goes back to the very beginnings of British civilization, and, too. Holy I don't cow. appreciate you waking me up in the morning with the bagpipes. But. <laughs> I'm going to get a uh, an app. That's going to be the sound. Wouldn't that be awful to oh, God. wake up to bagpipes? Oh, but when you think about it, such a strange sound, right? Think of that. Your enemies have these weird-sounding pipes, and they, when you hear those, you know they're on their way to you. Uh -huh. That'd be scary it, as hell. It, oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Another architecture question, Marcia. Yeah. In 1930, the Chrysler Building was completed in Manhattan. That's this beautiful Art Deco yeah, structure. I love it. It became the tallest building in the world. What building did it dethrone? The Empire State Building. No. No? No. What? It dethroned the Eiffel Tower. 
Really? From 1889 to 1930, the Eiffel Tower was the world's tallest structure, and that changed in 1930 with the Chrysler Building, which was first to reach over 1,000 feet in height. Hmm. Eleven months after that, the Empire State Building came. Yeah. That was in 1931, and then that became the world's tallest building. And what's building. the tallest one today? The Burj Khalifa in Dubai. That's an amazing-looking building. I, I don't think I want to go that high, though. That's, that's awful high. <laughs> it's too much. Okay, my turn. My turn. What country, Bob, has the most unusual time zone? It has the most unusual time zone? Uh-huh. What would that be? What would be unusual about a time zone? It's an hour here, an hour there? It usually is. And in some countries, it's a half hour. Oh, but, I didn't know that. Yeah. But this is neither a half hour or an hour. How long is it? I don't know. <laughs> uh, in Nepal, they have their time is divided by 45 minutes difference from everybody else. Why would they do that? Uh, well... It deviates from the coordinated universal time, which is the legal and scientific time, by 45 minutes because um, of the meridian time that passes through their mountains, the Himalayas. Mm -hmm. So the countries around them, some of them which have that weird half-hour time change, or the hour ones, they drives them nuts because they're 45 minutes different. So it's a 15-minute on both sides difference. But anyway, they're proud of their unique time zone. <laughs> it's like island time in yeah. the mountains. Yeah, well, oh. <laughs> they call it Nepali stretch time. Oh, and they joke that it's kind of a 15-minute grace period in case they're late for appointments. <laughs> 45 minutes instead of an hour. That doesn't seem like that's very helpful to the rest of the world. Well, they're doing it scientifically, so the way it is. All right. You just mentioned where the world's uh, tallest building is. Country by country, where are the world's top 10 buildings? Can you give me a few of the countries? Well, Dubai. That's the United Arab Emirates. Yeah. Dubai. Okay. Uh, United States. United States. Someplace in Canada? No. The rest are all in Asia. Are they? Okay. Or Shanghai, Hong Kong, China. Okay. Help me. Okay. The top 10 tallest buildings in the world are in the United Arab Emirates, Second one is the Shanghai Tower in China. And from there, you go to Saudi Arabia, South Korea, the U.S., Taiwan. And then there are five other tallest buildings in the world in China. In China. We have only one tall building on the list in the United States. Wow. Amazing. Really? And that one is? The new One World Trade Center. Sixth tallest building in the world. Sixth huh. tallest. And then you mentioned the Burj Khalifa. That's 2,716 feet tall, and it has seven world's records, including the world's highest occupied floor and the tallest service elevator. How many floors do you think there are? 90. 160. I bet you they're all apartments, people stacked up on top of each Luxury other. Luxury residents, hotels, bars, more than a 1,000 pieces of artwork. The highlight on the 148th floor is a place called At the Top, the highest observation deck on the planet. Amazing. Okay. okay. I'm going to give you some nicknames for famous world landmarks, and you tell me what the landmark is, okay? okay. All right. The Iron Lady. That was Margaret Thatcher, but that must be, I think that's the Eiffel Tower. Yes. The Mother Road. Is that the China, the Silk Road from China? No. Where is the Mother Road? Is it in the United States? Yes. Okay, that must be Route 66. Good for you. <laughs> Route 66. Exactly. Okay, the Niagara of the West. The Niagara of the West. We're talking 
another waterfall. Yes. Okay, where is it? It's Shoshone Falls in Idaho. Oh. It's uh, 45 feet taller than Niagara Falls. I had no idea it's that tall. But it's only 1,000 feet wide compared to Niagara, which is 4,000 feet wide. Wow. All right, this is my favorite. What landmark is called by locals nuns in a scrum? (laughs) (laughs) Nuns in a scrum. Is this a building? Yes. I think I've heard of this, but I can't remember the building. I love it. It looks like white nuns hats, right? Something like that? Yeah. And they're all kind of bent over? Yeah. What is that? Want me to give you the country? Yeah. You'll get it, I'll bet. Australia. Oh, it's the Sydney Opera House. Good for you. Okay, yes, nuns yes. in a scrum. Yeah. Because it looks like they're all got their heads bent down. Yeah. Oh, isn't that hilarious? It is. Very uh, irreverent. All right. Another building question for you. Boy, you really got a... I got some buildings, yeah. <laughs> okay, for nearly 700 years, 700 years, what were the tallest, most advanced buildings in the world? Well, it would have been the pyramids, wouldn't it? No. No. For 700 years, they were the highest level of construction and planning in the world. Don't If it's not the pyramids, I can't. The Christian cathedrals of Europe. Oh, of course. They were the high-tech buildings of their day. The Pyramid of Giza was only 481 feet. Oh, yeah. The largest structure in the world for over 3,800 years until the construction of England's Lincoln Cathedral in 1311 at 520 feet. And from then on... From 1311 to 1884, for more than 670 years, the world's tallest buildings were all churches. I should have known that from Pillars of the Earth. Amazing. And the Eiffel Tower was the first one that superseded those. Yeah. Quite interesting. Do you know, Bob, there's a name for a single spaghetti noodle? (laughs) No, I didn't. Well, there is. According to Bon Appetit, it's called spaghetto. Spaghetto. Yep. Just for a single noodle, that's what... (laughs) It just reminds me of SpaghettiOs. And we it had does, that, had that question it? a couple weeks ago. It's so funny. It, uh, yeah, it's just a single So the spaghetto noodle. is a real name. Yeah, a single spaghetti noodle. <laughs> so if you're on a real lean diet, pass the spaghetto, please. <laughs> and then you have one noodle. <laughs> yeah. That's all you're going to have. Okay, I got that. All right. All right. I have another question for you on sports, okay? What professional sports team had the first female play-by-play announcer? First ever. Recently, last year. Was it the NFL? No. No. Basketball. Yes, it was. The Knicks, New York Knicks. No, the Milwaukee Bucks. Really? Yeah. How did I miss that? Lisa Byington, she is the first full-time female play-by-play broadcaster for a major men's professional sports team. She really, as a background, she was a sports anchor and reporter for Michigan TV stations. She's done play-by-play for softball, field hockey, football, soccer, gymnastics, volleyball, and college basketball. And oh yes, the very first woman to do play-by-play of men's college basketball too. She did that for CBS and Turner Sports. That's amazing, yeah, isn't it? That's, that's a great that's a good resume. That's a great glass ceiling to break. It, yes, it is. And there was another milestone. There were two women calling the same pro ball game for different networks. No kidding. Byington for the Milwaukee Bucks and Beth Moens for ESPN. That was Sunday, October 8th, 2021. You go, girls. All right. <laughs> okay, I guess that's it for today. We want to thank Paul from Monterey, thank California. You. Thank you, Paul. Yes. And if you'd like to submit a question that you would like one of us to stump the other with, you can do so by going to our website, theofframp.show, going all the way down to contact us. 
filling out the form there and uh, telling us where you're uh, writing to us from. We'd really appreciate that. Okay. And now famous last words from a gentleman called Lord Beaverbrook, mm-hmm. a British politician of the Conservative Party and also a newspaper proprietor. His famous last words were, This is my final word. It's time for me to become an apprentice once more. I have not settled in which direction, but somewhere, sometime, soon. That's a big 30. Isn't that what they used to say? You <laughs> oh, have to type yeah. 30 at the that's, end? Uh, that or a hash mark. You could do either when your story was ended so that everybody knew that was the end. That would have been funny. Just write a hash mark on your forehead. <laughs> Maybe that's what I'll do. And I'm off. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time when we return with more fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia here on The, the Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.